The Deep Dive with Nick Baby. Welcome to The Deep Dive with Nick Babel. I'm your host, Nick Babel. Today, my guest is Tori Kais, executive producer, head of Kais & Co. Management Company, uh, and creative executive for a new startup. Uh, Tori's production company has worked with HBO, Sony, Paramount, Burger King, All Deaf Digital, uh, to name just a few. Tori, thank you for doing the podcast. Thanks, Nick. I'm happy to be here. So, as my listeners probably don't know, we both grew up in the same small town in central New York. Um, we sure did. So, my question for you is, how did you go from, from Groton, New York, to, to Nashville is, is where you started out, right? Yes. And what was it like working in the music city? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I mean, coming from a place like you know, our, our very small hometown where, you know, our graduating class was like 70 something people. Um, I actually went to school at Middle Tennessee State and that's literally the biggest college in the state of Tennessee. Most people don't know that. They think that UT is the biggest, it's not. Um, I think there's like 26, 27,000 students. And so I went from being, you know, in a very small place to being in a very big place uh, overnight. And I loved every second of it. And Nashville is to this day still one of my favorite places. It's where I got my first gig and cut my teeth in artist management. Um, but I just, I love the area. It's changed so much now because it's very, very, very busy. Um, lots of construction. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up in Nashville because I was going to college and then, um, you know, landed my first job at Vector Management, which was one of the biggest management firms in the country, certainly in Nashville. Um, did a bunch of freelance work for them and um, you know, started as an intern and then loved it so much, loved management so much, but I wanted to be a tour manager. I was advancing all these shows for you know, like the old 97s and Buddy Miller, and I didn't know what a Hammond B3 organ was or what a Leslie cabinet was or why you needed one. <laughs> so uh, I was like, I'd better go learn the technical side of this business. And so I wanted to be a tour manager because um, I was young and loved traveling and loved, you know, this new um, kind of like had, you know, uh, aha glasses on. And I realized that the world was so much bigger than the one that I came from. And right. so I wanted to see more of it. <laughs> so I ended up going to Full Sail in Florida after that for kind of quote unquote grad school and learned the live show production touring side of the business and also had a blast there. And I love my Full Sail family. Full Sail is probably one of the best experiences that I had um, growing up uh, along with Nashville. Um, and then moved back to Tennessee thinking that I'd just get a job back at Vector, get my, go do something else and go be a tour manager. But I didn't realize that no one really wants a tour manager. Uh, that's a female because, you know, most bands are young and do a lot of really dumb things and they don't want to narc and they don't want to nag and they don't want to 
<laughs> someone to tell them what to do. And I didn't know that because <laughs> I'd never been on tour before and I never dealt with bands in that capacity. Um, you know, cause we can deal with them. Like at the, at the management company, they're on their best behavior, <laughs> you know, but right. when they're on tour, they're certainly not on their best behavior in most <laughs> cases. <laughs> so, um, I ended up finding this uh, company because we learned live video as well at Full Sail and ended up finding this show that was in development with MTV that was looking for an intern. Um, I joined them within a week. They fired their New York crew, hired me as their producer, and I was on a tour bus in two weeks traveling around the country interviewing and playing pranks um with the biggest bands in the world the biggest music festivals and then I became a producer had no idea how to be a producer didn't know anything about filming didn't know anything about television uh but I've always been really good at organizing chaos and so I don't even think I could drink legally at the time I think I was still 20 when that happened because I remember going to a club and like not knowing anything about drinking and (laughs) It's very strange. It's it's so many crazy road stories, but um, yeah, that was my first foray into being a producer. So that's how I got into TV. And then from then on, I just constantly merged my career in part producing, part artist management and and part tech startup. You know, I I paid a lot of my bills by coding websites when I was in college. And so I've just kind of always done those things and they followed me around everywhere I've gone. And here we are. <laughs> so how did you go from, from Nashville to, to move into LA? Um, that was an accident, actually, <laughs> as most of my life choices were. Um, so I was filming that show and then we, we stopped filming uh, after we were done with our first season. I did another show for Pac-Man Jones. Um, the Tennessee Titans football player. And so we were traveling around for that. And then we came back to pitch. And so the executive producer was pitching those shows um, in LA, the extra stuff that we had filmed. And there was nothing for me to do. So I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I ended up um, doing some gig work for um, some other video clients. That's how I met one of my business partners, actually. It's crazy that we've known each other that long uh, when you think about it. But uh, there was a movie that came to town after that was over. Um, the original movie was called The Cursed, but they changed the name to something. I don't remember what it's called now. Um, but uh, they needed a production coordinator. And again, I had no business being on a film set. I didn't know anything about film. But the UPM hired me and the UPM absolutely loved my work and asked me to come to LA and do his next film because he said it was really hard to find a good coordinator in LA, which I thought was really odd because I mean, LA was like production central. Uh, What I didn't realize was (laughs) it was because he was doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing and I wasn't smart enough to know it because I didn't know anything about the business. Uh. But (laughs) um, it ended up working out fine, but that's what I did. I ended up packing my stuff and driving across the country uh and working on a film set he ended up getting fired on that movie and they brought in two new upms and and line producers and they loved me so much that they hired me on their next film so i did a bunch of films that were like 10 million and up 
that I coordinated. Again, still had no business being on film set, but I figured it out. Um, Sometimes that's the I, best way to learn, right? Is to get thrown right into it. That's my preferred way to learn because I think everything that I, I've gone to a lot of school in my life, <laughs> and I can say single-handedly, there's stuff that you learn in school that's really important. It gives you that foundational knowledge, but nothing can teach you other than just experiencing it and going through the real life. It's like that, you know, um, fight or flight kind of experience that you get that really teaches you how to be good at your job. And um, I'm grateful for those experiences because it's what made me who I am today. So definitely. So in 2008, you started Plastic Media Production Company, um, a full service, uh, sorry, a full service digital agency. Um, you worked with a lot of big names, some I mentioned yep. in the intro. How, uh -huh. was, how was this experience running your own company? Um, and kind of in layman's terms, what were some of the things that the company did uh, for entertainment properties and high-profile brands? So I actually started my company on, again, not in, on accident. Um, I had, uh, I had just left probably the worst working experience I'd ever had in my life. I won't even talk about it. That's how bad it was. Um, but I wanted freedom. I never wanted to work for anybody ever again. Um, and so I started my own company. Everybody that I knew was in the music business, you know, because those were pretty much all of my relationships up to that point, even in, well, in movies and stuff as well. But, you know, I was most comfortable and still I'm always the most comfortable in music because it's what I've known the longest. Um, uh, but I decided to start an agency because I had all these musicians and these artists who, and this was, you have to think like 2008, this was just after the whole Napster fiasco and social media was like really starting to get going. Facebook had just gone public for people outside of schools. So it was like this big era where nobody really knew how to market anything online. It was like the wild, wild west. And so that's ultimately what we became. We started just servicing these artists and musicians who needed music videos and um, needed help getting their shows cut or, you know, content made. And it morphed into this digital agency because we kept getting bigger and bigger clients. You know, we got Burger King. We were a white label provider for a really big SEO company and for a couple of other companies in that capacity where we were doing all the work, didn't get any of the credit publicly, but, um, you know, we had massive clients and we did things like that for, for studios, for distributors. And essentially what we did is we created in modern terms, it's kind of like we were a creative agency, um, like an ad agency that focused on making creative. And so we would go and we would create content. We would market the content on social media. We would do paid ads. Uh, we would build out full, full blown campaigns. We would do all the PR, social media marketing um, uh, on a PR slide. And we would basically promote or launch brands. So whether it was a movie or an artist or, um, you know, just a, a company campaign, that's what we did. Oh, awesome. So it sounds like if anybody wanted to, you know, 
get stuff done online, especially like you said, back in 2008, I think Twitter was just, just yeah, really was- ramping up. Um, like you said, Facebook was, that was probably its heyday. Um, it's funny because I think about that era, <laughs> like, um, because I don't even ever remember starting a Medium account, right? And, but somehow I was always one of the early adopters of all these tech pieces. And so that's why people came to me because I knew a lot about the technology that they just didn't know and they didn't know how to use it to market. They didn't know how to use it to get their message out. And at the time it was like pulling teeth. You know, I remember it's actually, uh, I won't name the studio, but a big studio was one of my first, my first um, uh, potential clients when we were going big time. And their question was, how can you make a bad movie do well in the opening weekend box office? And I said, maybe you should be asking yourself why you're making bad movies. <laughs> because even then it was about, it was about making great products and then finding ways to market it, which now is a niche. But back then, you know, you had to fight tooth and nail for every dollar for digital. And now digital has overtaken traditional advertising. So at the time it was, we were doing something that not very many people had done before, um, which is why I think we, we had such great opportunities with such great clients. Yeah, you know, I noticed, you know, you worked, like you said, in music, um, TV, reality TV, films, but you worked with Burger King on their home delivery service. Um, yep. How did that partnership come about and, and what was that like? I don't really remember how it came about, but, um, you know, they were looking launching a delivery and this was before uber or uh, uber eats or postmates or doordash grubhub none of that stuff existed yet and so they were looking at how do you how can we launch this delivery service and so like most corporate clients you know they want to start regionally improve the model and if the model works then they'll expand it nationally and we did pretty well in the regions that we were doing but it was around the same time that other services started popping up and so ultimately while they could have expanded it they decided not to because it was more lucrative for them to kind of wait for mass adoption and not have to cover the cost of the infrastructure because then it's very similar to what's happening right now in entertainment right um Burger King could go through the expense of building out a delivery network, but that's solely dependent upon just people wanting Burger King food delivery. And the reality is, is that people want everything to be able to be delivered. That's why Uber eats Grubhub Postmates. Those things can be successful because it appeals to every restaurant and becomes, you know, just like Uber, a a commodity in in many ways where you're just using economies of scale to help people solve their efficiency problem. And ultimately, I think that's why the delivery for for Burger King never went um, in the direction that we were hoping that it did. We got a lot of press for it. We we got a lot of traction and it was successful in expanding in the region that it was going. But ultimately the business strategy uh, wouldn't work because it was too cost prohibitive 
for not the right customer reason, which is the most important piece of pretty much anything entertainment related. Are you, are you doing the best thing for the consumer? And that's the most important thing that you could ever think about. Definitely. And I, you know, like you said, it's kind of a good parallel to streaming today because like, um, uh, Peacock there, NBC, they just bought the rights to WWE who had their own streaming service for, for a while, but they found it instead of running their own platform, they sold out for a good chunk of money to NBC who is expanding their streaming platform. So I wonder if that's going to be the, you know, streaming started out very, you know, a few companies at a time and then kind of blew up into everybody wanting to do their own. But I wonder if it's going to fold back into like two or three that buy up the rights to these other ones so they don't have to run their own platforms. Well, I think you're seeing that in like Paramount Plus, right? So Paramount Plus and Paramount has one of the biggest catalogs, but they strategically went and did a lot of partnerships with other other people. And you see Disney, right, taking their content from Netflix. Netflix was the leader for a really long time because Netflix had everybody's content because there was no alternative. If you wanted to watch entertainment streaming online, you had to watch Netflix. Well, now... Amazon, and here's the the piece that people don't realize about what Amazon's doing. Amazon is doing it not because they care about the content, which is in direct competition to what Netflix and Disney are thinking, right? Amazon does it because Amazon is trying to continue to influence and secure eyeballs so that they can continue to sell them goods. Like that is what Amazon does from a strategy perspective. And so everybody else is just there because they've got this massive content library and they want to own more of the pie. So Disney, you know, has this massive brand and all of this content that's, you know, decades and decades old, you know, why would they give it all to Netflix when they can just create their own platform and create their own uh, content? Now, the problem that no one's paying attention to is that that isn't what's great for consumers. It's the same thing with Burger King, right? So if you have a delivery service, but the only thing that you can buy from your delivery service is Burger King, are you going to use it as much as you would if you could get delivery from everywhere? Of course not. Um, You know, and there's so much, the the biggest thing that people have to fight right now that we didn't have to worry about, say, in 2008, right, when when movie theaters were still important to to the box office revenue and the revenue stream of a movie, when sales for records still existed, you know, like this, you're competing now for eyeballs. Like it's, there's, when you go back to the 1950s, right? There's three channels, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And that's it. Everyone in the country watched those same three channels. And so the majority of people have the same frame of reference when it came to pop culture. But now you go and look at direct TV or cable. You've got 500 plus channels of all different content curated by kind of subject matter. Uh, subject matter. Now you have streaming services all based on content platforms. Now you have music channels on your Spotify all based on the type of genre that you listen to. 
So the audience is getting segmented, more and more segmented every single day. And so the actual ability for you to create a customer profile that you can market to in mass is so difficult (laughs) that you're literally competing. Can you drill down those exact customers with Facebook ads and Google ads? Absolutely. But you're actually, what's happening in the industry is people are actually creating the antithesis of their market because there's just too much content, too much, too many networks, too many platforms, and that's not what the customer wants. Like, think about it for yourself. If I turn on Netflix and I feel overwhelmed, I'm like, wow, there's too many things to watch. Same thing if you go to a restaurant. You look at a menu and it's 20 pages long. You're like, I don't know what I want to eat. But you look at a menu and it's one page long. You're like, yeah, I want that. Yeah, definitely. So that's that's what the entertainment industry has to reckon with. Yeah, and I think whoever figures that out is going to be, you know, really successful because I know people back when Hulu was coming out were like, oh, I'm not paying for another one of these. I already got Netflix. But, you know. Yeah. Hulu found a way, and then Amazon, like you said, they came out. So then it was three, and people were like, well, we'll get two of them, you know. But but now it's more and more fragmented and niche, you know. You can get, like, Discovery Plus and, you know, just it's all over the place. And, yeah, I don't know exactly what the answer is to it, but... Um, you I mean, think- I have a good idea of an answer, but I can't tell you uh, <laughs> because I don't want anyone to know the answer before I get it done. Um, but it's something to watch for sure because it's it's no matter who solves a problem, whether you know I'm successful at solving it or anybody else is successful at solving it, it has to be about the consumer because at the end of the day, it's one of the reasons why working in the marketing agency world was so beneficial for me. And it's because it really forced you to think about everything that you do has to be for the consumer. And I get into creative discussions with, with directors. One of, one of my best friends and business partners, Jason, um, <laughs> he's a director. He's one of the most brilliant directors I've ever met in my whole life. Um, he's the next James Cameron for sure. And I tell awesome. everyone that you're listening. Um, and we get into debates all the time about budgets. And he's like, you know, his ideas are massive, like <laughs> hundred million dollar movie massive. And I'm like, Jason, why do you need three spaceships? You can have one. <laughs> he's like, I need three. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and so that's really what it comes down to, right? Is like, how do you, at the end of the day, you can have as much vision in you want, as you want, but there's there's a, a fine line between being creative and doing something that the customer wants. And sometimes those are one and the same. If you're Christopher Nolan, right? The customers want your creativity because the kind of crazy creativity that you're creating is something so unique that they can't wait to watch it. And I think Jason fits in that boat if we're just gonna continue that example for a second. You know, but there are a lot of people who are making movies just because it's their passion um, and they have no concern for what the consumer wants and they're not making anything different or new. Netflix is a good example of this, right? So Netflix has a myriad of data 
you know, they're basically a data company. And so they're sitting here saying, well, we know that the, that the public will watch Adam Sandler movies on repeat. So what are they doing? They're making a bunch of movies that are Adam Sandler movies. And there's nothing wrong with the Adam Sandler movies. His movies are great. I like watching 50 First Dates. <laughs> you know, I, I think Adam Sandler is a really funny comedian. But do I only ever want to watch Adam Sandler movies for the rest of my life? Is that what I want Netflix to focus on making? Of course not. Yeah. And that's where this data funnel really gets in the way of the future because data will show you what you want to see and it will show you things that are true, but that will sometimes lead you down a tunnel path. And that's what's happening right now in streaming. And you look at Netflix, what Netflix used to be known for, you know, Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, these shows that were so different than what other people were seeing and were produced so well. And the storylines were so unique. It was so fascinating for people and they loved it. It's why people bought into Netflix because the content was good. But now, I mean, is Netflix popping out great shows? I can't tell you the last time a Netflix show was good. Yeah, it's definitely not like it used to be. Like, I think kind of to your point, data can be the enemy of innovation, really. Because absolutely, you're looking at the what's been successful, but that doesn't really show you what will be successful. The the only pretty decent Netflix show I've seen recently is that Sweet Tooth. I don't know if you've watched that. Oh, you know, I watched, um, I think I watched the first couple episodes. That's really good. I really it's, like that show. Yeah, I'm not done with it, but it, I'm like halfway through it and I can see, I can see the idea for a really good show in there. And, but in general, like though. Said, it's innovative and unique. Yeah. Yeah. And Netflix used to pop those out every couple months. And now it's yeah, like. Yeah, there was a new one every month. And one of the reasons is because they're trying to keep up with the content. And, and my argument is, do you need, really need to release a bunch of new shows every week? Why? Why do you need to release that much content? And they're focusing on the diversity. They're focusing on you know geographical expansion. So they're, um, I have a really good friend, Paul Eckstein, who was one of the showrunners for um, uh, Narcos. And we had this really interesting conversation about what Netflix was doing with Narcos. Um, you know, they hired a Brazilian director, they hired a Brazilian, uh, the main Brazilian actor, and they did it because Narcos was never supposed to be intentionally successful here in the States. Um, it was meant to help them expand in the Brazilian territory. It just so happened that it worked in the US. You know, and much of that is to Paul's credit because he's an amazing showrunner and he's amazing, an amazing creator. So, you know, of course it could translate. But right. even if you watch that show, when you watch the first episode, the storytelling in Brazil is very different than the storytelling in America. And so that first episode spans all of this time. And that would have never happened in, an Amer in a traditionally American show. And so what Netflix is grappling with is how do they expand globally? and match the desire for content in local markets while also uh, appealing to the major user base because to this day, our strongest export in the rest of the world is media. Like you look around and you look at, you, you know, I'm in London right now. And so I popped up this Netflix and it's some other person's Netflix. <laughs> you never <laughs> signed out. 
And um, which is always a fun experiment, by the way. I love doing that when that happens because then I'll watch the absolute opposite of whatever's in there. They're cute. <laughs> They're cute recommendations just because um, I like messing with people. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, you look at the skew of, of Netflix shows, it's almost all American content with a handful of like British shows skewed in here. So it's like, globalization is a thing that's the that's the next big frontier is how do you manage all of this content in a in a global market and does the u.s understand what that means when it comes to export of culture right and asia is going to be a big market uh, movies have already been now. yeah you know here's the crazy here's the crazy part about it i don't mean to cut you off but i get very excited about it um you know i mean people are excited about asia because you know it's a billion plus eyeballs well it's a billion plus eyeballs in in india too you know but the challenge is is that those countries are very difficult especially china and getting money out like you want to make the the running joke with some of my friends who do business in asia you you want to make a a a billion dollars in china start with 10 um (laughs) so um but there is to your point there's a lot of eyeballs there's a lot of opportunity there's a lot of great storytelling I have some friends of mine who are making great shows in China and are doing amazing things. And I'm excited to see how the market continues to evolve. But, uh, and I'm especially excited here that so many uh, Asian stories are starting to be told in American media um, uh, because I, I think uh, I, I'm, I've been helping out with a show um, that's about uh, ben Fong Torres, the first music editor of Rolling Stone magazine, and he was, uh, he's a Chinese-American, his family immigrated from China, and uh, what's really interesting is that no one knows that he was the driving force behind Rolling Stone, because uh, it's such a big cultural sensitivity thing was not taking credit, not being boastful, and his brother actually was murdered. His brother was a social worker and he was murdered in, um, in Chinatown trying to help, you know, during the, the civil rights era. And it really shut down the Asian American civil rights movement. And so they're so far behind the rest of the civil rights movement because they got spooked and never really had their moment. And so I'm hoping that I'm just, disgusted by the Asian hate thing that's going on uh, in America, but I'm really hopeful that this is the moment for Asian people to really, you know, have their civil rights movement in a way that they haven't had before, that we're moving towards a, a place of equality because, you know, there shouldn't really be any reason why we're not equal. Definitely. I, I totally agree. And I think it is going to happen. It's just, um, you know, like everything, it's, it's a slow process. And like you said, there's a lot more voices that are being heard. Um, and I think they're going to continue and, you know, it's going to be a big, you know, you're already seeing the beginnings of it, but it's definitely going to be the way it goes the next bunch of years. And, and that's a good thing. The more diversity in entertainment, the more, you know, worldly we all become, I think. so. Absolutely. And there's never been a better time. You know, I mean, there, there's never been a better time for diversity. Um, 
I actually sat next to on my plane ride to LA earlier um, earlier in the week, uh, who specifically focused on doing diversity for studios. Her, her husband is a well-known actor and um, she's, she's doing uh, diversity training for studios. And we were talking about how it's just, there's never been a better time for diversity to be a focus. And um, it'll just make us better because we'll understand people's stories so much better than it just being one perspective. And so couldn't be happier about the fact that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless, but we're moving in the right direction. And, and we will continue to do that as the world becomes global because it's not going to stop. We're going to continue to be a global, um, a global force and entertainment's going to become more globalized just as, you know, economies are becoming more globalized and it's just part of evolution. It's part of humanity. We're no longer stuck with wheels and barrows and and fire and stones you know we're on an airplane you can get from from one end of the world to the other in less than 20 20 hours so well you know i was thinking about like um they're doing a new wonder years um with an all-black cast and Uh you know you see people some people bitching on social media about it the 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 tale is going to tell if it's good if you know if the show's done well it's written well i'm gonna watch it i don't care what color the cast is if you know i think the mistake that maybe some companies have made is they've they've rushed kind of like a fake diversity um, yes. Where Absolutely. they put something out just because, oh, we need our Asian show or we need our Spanish show. And they haven't picked the right, you know, intellectual property that is actually done well. And well, here's, here's a key component of exactly what you're saying, right? So um, I actually got it accepted and was a producer skilled diversity fellow, uh, I think in 2016. And it's fascinating what the Producers Guild is doing for diversity. I'm so proud of them. So I was so grateful to be part of that program. Mm. And I'm really passionate about making diverse content and having diverse companies with diverse voices. I think those are always the best. But what's really interesting to me is exactly what you said. Think about Wonder Years, right? What they're doing instead of actually listening to diverse voices is they're just saying, well, we're going to take an existing IP and we're going to make it black or we're going to make it Asian or we're going to make it, you know, Hispanic. And that's not diversity Mm -hmm. because it's not a diverse voice in the first place. You're trying to take a white perspective and paint it with a different color so that it's palatable to a white audience. And what's really, you know, like Black Panther is probably the best example. Black Panther showed you that there are hidden figures. Another great example. What these movies and these movements is showing you is that people want to hear and see diversity from their own voice. They don't want to see diversity from someone else's voice. And that's where studios, you know, somewhat get it wrong. But again, that this is the other key component is the problem that you have is that the majority of major studio executives are the same people that have been there for decades 
and they don't want to relinquish control. You know, that's the biggest issue in the music business. You know, it's still run by the same people who were running it 40 years ago. Yeah. And that's how do you get those people to change? Yeah. And, you know, until you have diverse voices as CEOs, you know, and I think it will, I think, you know, sports has the same problem. Um, You know, for take the NBA, for example, I don't know the exact statistic, but let's say 90% of the league is is African-American. There's, Mm -hmm. there's no black owners of any of the teams. And partial owners, but, but no full owners. No. no full owners, and there's there's only a couple general managers for these teams that are that are African American. It's like most most of them are white, um, and even coaches. Which you're each time you're going down levels, and even coaches, it's the disparity is uh, is quite you know revealing, but. And it's like that, and it's not just basketball. It's and basketball is probably the the actually. Sorry, hit my mic. Um, bas- basketball is probably the the most diverse um, uh-huh. for management, but still they're they're failing. So um, it'll just be interesting to see where it goes in the next, you know, 10, 10 15 years. On the positive side. On the positive side, there are a lot of companies who are genuinely putting a lot of money behind their diversity initiatives. Um, you know, I'm a proud Trojan and USC authored that really amazing study that Netflix did with the diversity in their programming. So people are starting to really pay attention to it and to actually make the changes and to put money into content initiatives. You know, my biggest, my biggest concern when you talk about diversity, there's so many voices that need to be heard. How do you make sure that all of the voices are being heard? Right. And you really don't have any control over that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, the startup that I've been working on over the last three, four years um, is uh, I didn't want to be, <laughs> I didn't want to be the CEO, but I realized that in order for um true change to happen and true diversity, uh, I needed I needed to be the one who was steering the vision of the ship, um, you know, because the first three and a half years uh, was someone else steering the ship. And it was very difficult to do things the right way, um, even though, you know, the majority of it was my vision anyway. And so it's so important. And hopefully, you know, for anyone that listens to this, that they get the courage to always follow their their voice and sometimes you're meant to help other people and sometimes you're meant to be the leader and that doesn't that isn't an always all or nothing you know sometimes i'm um, the helper and i'm i'm doing the work to help other people um execute their visions and sometimes it's my vision and it just matters that no matter what the story that you're telling is one that means something that the audience cares about and that you're focusing on the customer. And as long as you do those things, the rest of it always works itself out, you know? But to me, it's about making sure that you're always trying to push to make humanity a better place. And if you're not doing that, then really, what are we even doing here? Exactly. And like you said, it's, you know, the when you do it the right way, it, it's 
it finds success. Yeah. Absolutely. So it won't come easy, but you right. know, nothing, nothing easy. Nothing good ever is, yeah. right? Exactly. It's always it always requires effort. And then you, as long as it requires effort, you can always be really proud of the result when you're done. Definitely. And that's I've taken a lot of time off over the past couple of years to really recalibrate how and why and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, which I think is important for everyone to do. Sometimes you just need a timeout. You don't have to keep going and going and going if you don't know what you want to do. And, um, you know, I've had a really diverse career in a lot of arenas and I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what made me happy. And I, I do now because I took the time to make sure that what it was that I was doing was worthwhile and would make a positive impact on humanity. And, um, I encourage everybody to really make sure that that's, you know, are you doing what you love and are you making the world a better place? Even if that's, you know, listen, entertainment isn't feeding homeless children or, um, you know, fixing cancer, but it does bring joy to people's lives and it can uh, empower people and highlight amazing stories. Music can transcend souls um, and, and um, yeah, you know, definitely. To me, that's what inspires me. So as long as, as I feel like that helps other people, then that's great. So everyone should, you know, can find the thread of, of what makes it work for them. Yeah. And, you know, entertainment is, what makes the uh, you know life worth living a lot of times for for a lot of people so absolutely so i i noticed so in your bio it said after 10 years with plastic media company um and this is probably the break you were talking about you you folded it into kai's and co media conglomerate um yep. I saw that one of your focuses with this is producing and marketing content and combining with its patented proprietary, uh, that's a tongue twister, proprietary digital technology, um, including artificial intelligence um, and beacon tracking technology uh, and and developing new technology. So that's... That's kind of a, a new thing for you, isn't it? That's kind of different AI technology. Um, what does that uh, entail exactly? Yeah, so it started like way back in the day when we were really focused on, you know, plastic and, and doing marketing campaigns. You know, we were kind of on the cutting edge of, of beacon technology and, um, and tracking. We could actually put, ads um, to the exact audience uh, before the Google ad exchange. And we had some crazy beacon technology that would allow us to geofence marketing and advertising. And we're still doing that. We're just expanding it in the artificial intelligence arena and really focusing on, um, focusing on switching the paradigm from unintended marketing, meaning, you know, getting bombarded by ads because you happen to visit a website, you know, for uh, Coca-Cola and now all you see is Coke ads on your Instagram feed. 
um, you know, that's the result of a lot of the stuff that, you know, we were a part of and that we were part of building back then. Um, the future to me is actually switching that model and, and what we're working on now is actually having the opt-in. So people actually just being a part of the things that they care about and having exclusive experiences and access to those things without um, without the advertising in the tr traditional way. And, you know, we haven't worked out all the kinks yet, but I think if we can update the advertising model so that it's really not what it has been since the 50s, you right. know, I think we could all be in a better place. I think people, you know, Instagram ads are really successful, but once you get to that success, you know, copycats come in, they start taking over, they start, you know, peddling bad goods. So there's there's just got to be a more wholesome integrated way of leveraging AI, leveraging um, that technology as it continues to evolve with what's out there um, and turn that into, you know, an opted in non-advertising model, which is what we're working on now in the, in the new startup that I'm, I've been building. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the startup, but you did tell me, you know, it's a little hush-hush right now, which I get, you know, you want to yeah. get it going. Um, so I'll skip that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to do a mini deep dive and we talked about some of this already, but, um, you know, what is the future? What does the future hold for new, me uh, new media, you know, i.e. cable television, streaming films and music? Um, you know, the first one I wanted to talk about was TV and streaming, but I, I think we already kind of nailed that. Um, I will say on the TV side, just to that end, I think that you will see the death of, of traditional television. I, I think that it's, I mean, I have friends, for example, who work at, at networks and I mean, how they're even making their advertising money, I have no clue because no one's watching. And you look at the numbers for some of the major networks for the first time pbs surpassed traditional television um like traditional cable and prime time like that television oh, wow. what a trajectory traditional television is on so unless they find a way to reinvent themselves um which is something that we are working on because uh, I, I think that tra traditional television is valuable but a lot of the priorities are wrong and so you know, again, it's part, it's part of changing this idea of advertising being the only source of revenue for content. And it's really fascinating when you think about it, because, you know, the music industry makes money very differently than television and film. And really, television makes money in a very different capacity than film. Yet all of it is entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that you can have three different business models from content that really isn't all that different is is a big piece of the future like how do you how do you consolidate these methodologies and leverage things that work in this business that could work in this other business that could work in this other business and so that i think is the future i think entertainment's going to get consolidated i think that it's going to um converge uh, in some interesting ways and and that'll be the wave of the future i don't think it's going to happen anytime in the near future um unless someone steps in like what we're trying to do 
Um, but if left to their own devices, you know, everyone's in a very greedy space right now. They're trying to own their platforms and, and force consumers, you know, to buy a subscription to every piece of content, <laughs> you know, uh, ever made. And I don't know that the consumer base will support that. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think they will. Um, and with cable television, you know, it's like you said, it's declining rapidly. It would be dead if it wasn't for live sports, um, in my opinion. Well, because... you look at you look at live sports and look at Amazon just did the deal for uh, for uh, the Super Bowl. It's like, right. how are you how are you going to compete when the streaming companies take over sports? How are you going to compete? They can't. And the other piece that I think is important that if they wanted to compete, they have to get over their PG. PG, PG-13 model, in my opinion, because if what are you going to watch? People watch The Sopranos, you know, over and over and over again because, one, it's, you know, one of the best written shows ever. But, two, it's because it's not, it's not constrained to, you know, the PG, PG-13 model where everybody, nobody swears you know, no, no sex scenes, no, um, I guess, you know, network TV gets away with some, some violence, but that's about it. And to your, to your point, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why Netflix became popular in the first place is because you look at shows like Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, right. um, or even Bridgerton, which by the way, you know, Netflix is also going to have to figure out on the flip side, like Bridgerton I love Shonda Rhimes, so I was, ex- and I loved Bridgerton, but like <laughs> it was raunchy as hell. <laughs> like I was like, am I watching a porn? <laughs> like it was so so ostentatious, and you know Netflix is going to have to figure out whether or not people are okay with that because on the flip side of the coin, you know, there's got to be a middle of the ground so that you right. at least know what you're getting into. Because imagine if you were watching Bridgerton you know, you were a parent and you were watching Bridgerton with like your 13 year old child. Like there's no warning. There's no <laughs> yeah. uh, graphical, uh, you know, <laughs> and you'd be like, you think you're watching a period drama about, you know, uh, dating and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you know, you're arranged marriages and you're in, you know, in the middle of the porn. <laughs> I never watched, I didn't watch that show, but I did hear, I did hear that it was really, but, but, you know, there's easy ways to, (laughs) (laughs) there is easy ways to, to do that though. Like you said, just give warnings, you know? um, Yeah. And you let them. But they don't like, right. So I have the TV on right now um, and it's just blowing across on Netflix. So sex education just came on and it's, it's warning is launchy. (laughs) 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 Okay. Oh, oh, Sex Life just came up and it says steamy. By the way, this isn't my Netflix. This is that other girl's Netflix. <laughs> um, so it's like, it's just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating yeah. how they're going to do that. But to your point, you know, the reason, the reason that Netflix shows became popular and Netflix became popular was because they ended the formulaic version of what traditional television was doing. And what that says is that the consumers have long been not happy about the content that traditional television is making, but they didn't have any other option. This is where that data stuff comes in, right? So if you look at the data, you could say, okay, well, you know, 
Grey's Anatomy got a lot of views. So Grey's Anatomy is a great show. Okay, but at the same time, there are plenty of plenty more people who watch Bridgerton. Right. So if you're only going by the data, you're missing a lot of things because it only tells you one piece of the story. And so traditional television is missing the fact that people want they want more than PG. They want non-typical, non-formulaic cookie cutter shows. You know, they don't need to That's see, awesome. you know, the 50th version of, you know, CSI reimagined. Right. You know, there's plenty of CSI episodes that people could go back and watch. And the key component that they're missing is that because of streaming, people can actually just go back and watch that content. They don't yeah. have to, you know traditional still operates in this world where you don't have on demand and you can't ever watch it again but we don't live in that world anymore so you don't need 50 csi shows because people can just go back and watch csi and the new csi show is coming out by the way is it i've never actually seen csi so (laughs) is a there's a new one csi it's they brought the original guy back for a new spinoff but (laughs) They're hoping um, that that will bring back the viewers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's a great point, though, that you can just go and binge these shows, and that's how people watch shows nowadays. They can sit there four hours and, you know, knock out four or five episodes of uh, I'm binging Criminal Minds right now. Perfect example. Well, and CSI or Criminal Minds, to your point, the thing that's interesting about those shows from a traditional television perspective is that they're specifically built to be evergreen standalone episodes. So even if you've never seen the show before, you can watch the episode and get something out of it. But today's storytelling because of binging, really, if you deconstruct it, what we're watching is one six hour long movie that's broken up into hour long episodes, right? And so everything has an arc that spans the entire series. But traditional television doesn't operate that way. So it's far less interesting to people to binge or to watch in succession or to even watch in general because it's just the same. And once you've watched one CSI, you've watched all of them. They're just a different story. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, net, network TV is traditionally slow to react. So it's going to be, you know. Well, there again, I, I always say this, and this is why I'm so grateful that I started my career in music. If you cannot learn from what the music industry experienced, then you will die, just like they did. Yeah. I mean, and the truth of the matter is that in today's world, music is free. Music is no longer something that artists get paid for, which is what they used to do. Music is now something that's just an advertisement for the rest of the brand that artists have to go and build in order to make money because the music industry wasn't smart enough to evolve, adapt, and innovate when Napster came along, which showed them what the audience wanted. It showed them what, what customers wanted from their music, but they weren't smart enough to stop it. So now music is free and will be free forever. Well, that was, that was one of my questions. What, what do you think the music industry looks like in the next five years? You know, some would say we've seen a drop in in music stardom due to, you know, many reasons, short attention spans, 
and like you said, it's all free now on wherever you want to stream it, Spotify and, you know, iHeartRadio, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, they have the streaming problem. A lot of record companies have folded. Does music go self-publishing? Is that is that what we're looking at? They're already doing self-publishing, but you have to follow the money, right? So what's really interesting um what's really interesting is that investors savvy investors are actually investing in mass in publishing holding companies that are buying up publishing catalogs um as an alternative asset class and so the real money in music is in publishing and always has been licensing and in publishing is that what Taylor, like what Taylor Swift's doing? She's re-recording all her masters. Yeah, because she, you know, she she always she'll always have the songwriting split because she's a songwriter. So thank goodness for that. If she weren't a song songwriter, it'd be a lot harder for her. But that's the thing. That's why you hear if you if you listen to shows that have a, a cover version of a popular song, they do that because then they don't have to pay for the master. They're only paying the publishing rights. And so Taylor makes, will make a lot more money of controlling and owning her own masters if she re-records it um, and sells it under the new master recording. Now the question is whether or not people will license or want to license the new record, the, the new recordings or whether they'll want to license the original master. Right. That time will tell, depends on how the outcome of her recording is, but knowing Taylor, she'll do the right thing. Yeah, I and, think she's going to be successful with it. It's it's whether others that don't have the financial stability that she does are going to be able well, to Well, that's that. the thing about music, right? The difficulty that you have is that, and it's the same difficulty that, in like, the, the fact that people don't recognize the similarities between all of these industries is crazy to me. But it's very interesting that it's very difficult for people in tech to understand and be successful with entertainment, vice versa, and even within entertainment for people who do TV not to understand film, who don't understand music. They're all the same. They all do the same thing. (laughs) They're not any different. You know, um, music labels are the the, the same. You know, they're, they're just like traditional broadcasters who are saying, well, oh, you know, um, Drake is really popular, so we need to find another rapper just like Drake. Right. Okay, or you could just find someone really talented. Like if you actually look at the trajectory of the most successful artists, many of them are just really unique artists doing really unique art. Like like Lord, like she's a really good example. Now right. she was in development with I think Interscope forever ago. I think she was thirteen, but that's what you need. You need someone to help hone the hone the artist into something commercially viable you know but the more commercially you make something and the less art it is the less appealing it is to the masses because they've already heard every formulation of you know of pick a justin bieber song or pick an ed sheeran song they're all the same it's all the same music there's nothing unique out there because labels don't care about being unique anymore they just care about trying to get trying to siphon the last of the commercially viable music that they can while they still exist and if you look at the actual staffing makeup of most record labels you know they've pretty much gutted all middle management 
you know, the people who had been there for five, 10 years. And it's the old dogs at the top who've been there, you know, 50 plus years. And it's a bunch of college interns, you know, that are young whippersnappers that know nothing about business, know nothing about the business, know nothing about pretty much anything other than marketing stuff. Um, And they're leveraging these artists' careers on hoping that these young kids can figure out how to market. Well, I mean, that's not strategy. That's not, that's why you don't get much that's innovative or new. So do you think um, record labels go the way of of cable companies? Is it the same? Yeah, I think think labels will die or they'll, they'll have to find, they'll probably find some way to reinvent themselves, but most, mostly they'll probably move into publishing um, because that makes the most sense of, of what they do. Um, I mean, you don't really need distribution anymore, especially if Spotify, you know, creates some kind of direct upload for artists, which I'm sure they're working on. Um, Then what do you need a label for? I mean, the only thing that the label is good for, for anybody is, um, you know, marketing promo. I mean, if you're, if you want to hit single, it's going to cost you about $4 million. So um, unless you have $4 million, yeah. <laughs> a record label comes in handy. But you don't need a record label with all the brand deals and all the TV shows and all the other opportunities. I mean, you don't really need a label for anything. Yeah. And, you know, for a lot of years before, maybe even before the streaming became the big thing, you know, record labels were notorious for ripping off, you know, their artists, you know, famously yep. Tom Petty. You know, he sued, he sued a lot of record companies and, you know, a lot of artists did. Um, but for years, touring was the way that they made their money. That's, no, you know, they made their money. that was the big thing. Well, you know, exact, exactly that being doing the whole touring thing. Um, but with COVID, COVID kind of killed that revenue stream. Um, but do you think now that everything's opening back up and I talked to my last guest about this because they're musicians, um, do you think touring is going to blow back up again? Yeah, I think when touring, when touring hits, I think it'll be, I think you'll see more shows and more revenue than you've ever seen in your life, but I think that'll be a big burst and then a return to normal. Um, because I think once life gets back to normal, people will settle back in their routines and it won't be like, oh my God, I've been in the house for two years. I need to go outside. <laughs> you know, once right. that feeling subsides, it, it will go back to normal. Um, the challenge that you're having, even the challenge that I'm having with some of my artists now is that, you know, you've got everybody and their brother going out on tour the moment that the, right. the gates are up so i mean everyone's out on tour at the same exact time whereas normally it was kind of like a overlapping seasonal thing like country singers for example they always go out from like wednesday to sunday or wednesday to saturday and then they're back you know from sunday to sunday to wednesday morning you know that's their schedule they don't really deviate from that well you know, but you have some artists that go out in the fall, you have some artists that go out in the summer, you have some artists that go out in the spring, and that's how they kind of um, tailor their tours around the preferred time that they like 
to go out so that they can maintain their schedule of like, oh, well, I go out in the summer because then I spend the fall in Italy or whatever. Right. And so uh, with everybody going out at the same time, you know, there's a, a big fight over venues, who's going to get to play when, <laughs> um, and, and there's a limited number of venues. So uh, even more so because a lot of the smaller venues closed down, like I was yeah. very sad that the exit in closed um, in Nashville. That was one of my favorite venues to ever to ever be at and um they're, they they shut it down um and they're yeah. shutting down a lot of it because they just couldn't survive and it took them too long to get the grants um right. out to the venues and so there's less and less places for people to play but more and more people going out so you know who wins well yeah. they've got more money to to um put down the guarantees and who the promoters are going to get behind and who the agents are pushing. So it'll be yeah. interesting. It's going to be interesting. The, like you said, the the market's going to be there, but the the whole supply and demand thing, uh, you know, mid-level and, and smaller venues definitely close, you know. It, it, kinda... it all comes down to eyeballs. It doesn't matter what business you're in. Right. Are you capable of getting people to listen to, to watch, to pay attention to whatever it is that you're doing? If you can't get butts in seats or you can't get eyeballs on screens, you know, that's the that's the problem that you have to solve. It's a problem yeah, everybody has to solve. Definitely. And I think that's gonna be, you're gonna kind of see a, a, in my opinion, a dichotomy between, you know, established acts and and like new artists that want to pop up you know the the established acts are going to definitely get the venues and the yeah. you know startup people are going to have to probably rely more on online stuff you know the only positive is that no matter what music will never go anywhere music is the one universal language i think more so than any other form of entertainment and musicians will never stop being musicians, whether they can get paid to play or not. Sure. Um, people will always make music and people will always listen to music. Um, the business always figures itself out. It's just a matter of time. And again, the sooner that people can understand that entertainment, whether it's a TV, a film, an artist, they're all the same thing. They're all doing yeah. the same thing. And so the sooner people can realize that and put them all together, um, you know, the better off the world will be. Yeah. And so that, you know, we talked about TV and music, I guess the other one we should touch is films, you know, even before COVID movie theaters were, were dying. Um, and then after COVID, I'm sure a lot of them shut down. I know AMC kind of became a, a meme thing and they they got a lot of money um i made some money on amc <laughs> um <laughs> but overall you know what i think is interesting about amc is that no one paid attention when when a chinese company bought amc in the first place yeah really <laughs> that's true um, <laughs> and, <laughs> let's hope they never decided to Im- impose chinese censorship into our theaters <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but do you see you know like you said they're all they're all entertainment and they all have different models the movie interest 
industry is kind of an interesting one because, and I know you know this, it costs more to make a movie than it does a TV show. Um, uh, in general, I would think. But don't you wonder why? So think about this for a second. Production is production, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost you any more money for a dolly and a crane for a film than it does for a TV show, than it does for a commercial, than it does for a music video. Production is production. It's like building a house, right? Whether right. you're building a house or a condo or a um, pick something, the materials cost the same no matter what you build. But the talent's the more expensive, easy. though, right? The, the talent's is more expensive. It? Is yeah. it? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I disagree. You know, I mean, I know that there have been some big paydays for Netflix. Netflix is essentially television. Sure. You know, and and the difference is is that on television for actors, you at least get residuals. In film, you don't get residuals. I mean, I guess you do if it goes to television, but, you know, for the most part, you're not getting residual every time someone goes and watches it in the box office. Yeah, sure. So that's what I mean about all of these, all of these pieces of the puzzle whether it's film or television or, or music video, they're all the same thing, but they're all treated as different business models. And when it comes to film, I think that film will continue to exist. I think that movie theaters, just like concerts, will get a boost. I mean, I just went to the movies last week um, uh, and, or this weekend and saw Black Widow, great movie, I see it. Um, <laughs> And if Florence Pugh and Scarlett did such a great job. Um, But it's going to change the importance, you know. And film, the way that film is financed as opposed to the way that television is financed. You know, film is all based on investors and the waterfall. And, you know, you could make... The Wolf of Wall Street is a really good example. You know, you could make a hundred million dollars in the box office, and you may have made the movie for a hundred million dollars, um, but you're not even kind of close to recouping your money. <laughs> so it's right. like, um, and that movie, the whole story behind the funding of that movie is pretty insane. It's super insane. Um, yeah. The whole thing is super insane, but film investment in general is difficult and that that's where the economic business model of all of these things is going to have to um centralize itself instead of being different instead of the cost of going and making an artist or going and making a film or making a television show they're all going to have to equalize because ultimately film won't succeed if it's dependent upon investors and then box office. Right. Because most people are, are shifting their habits from watching movies to streaming them. So film is going to have to adapt to television, is going to have to adapt to a different way of doing things and instead use um, theaters in a much limited run window and for a very different purpose than being its primary source of revenue. And 
that changes the landscape because if and even if you look at the last 20 years you know those mid-level budget movies let's say 10 million to 40 million they don't make those anymore really yeah i mean the, the movie budgets that they're making are either massive franchise films of 100 million and up or they're 10 million and under Sure. And so I mean, you can bet on a hundred million dollar franchise, although you know, learn the lesson that relativity made about betting on franchises. Right. Sometimes it doesn't work out. You well, know, but as long as you have it. Sorry, well, go ahead. I was gonna ask who centralizes it? Is it the companies like Disney and uh Paramount? Well that that's the problem, is that as long as people are only servicing their own product and their own good and not focusing on the industry. It will never happen. So you will need a disruptor like a Netflix to come in that uh, figures it out and and changes the economic model um, on behalf of the entire business. Yeah. Will that happen? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. But it's, it's the only way that everybody can move forward because people... People need to acknowledge, they don't need to, they can do anything they want, but um, the sooner that they acknowledge that all of this content is the same, the widgets are the same, it's just different, you know, you're either making a 30 minute series for 10 episodes or you're making one movie for two hours. It's the same. It's the same thing. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see you know, if they, if music, TV, and film all figure it out, you know, together, or if uh, they continue to, like, run their own business models, you know? Yeah. Well, as long as, as long as they're just trying to continue to survive, I'm actually working on a book about economic theory. Um you know, I mean, we have the crazy technology and the ability to 3D print stakes. So the idea that we live in based on the economics of, you know, trading in pre-medieval period um, really doesn't apply anymore. We don't live in a scarce society. We live in a society of abundance and really everything is about innovation and creativity. And that should actually be rewarded. And we should, we should be rewarding people for pushing society forward and if we did that and we changed our mindset in how we looked at things instead of valuing you know how low you can bring your bottom line well you know meanwhile nike is you know basically paying slave labor wages to people to make its products that they then spend hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing advertising and and brand ambassadorships right you know, if yeah. we changed our perspective and thought about how to actually push society forward and got out of the way of thinking about how things have always been done and how things are in a box, we could greatly advance as a society. You know, but if we worry about, well, you know, television has always been an advertising model or film has always been about box office or music has always been about radio promos, well, I can tell you a secret. <laughs> when, I, when I was doing a plastic work and we were putting out movies, you know, I made the best singles of my life and, and really changed the trajectory of music 
on a lot of those movies because one of my mentors in the business back in my Nashville days um, architected the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack and told me that, you know, the secret to a hit movie is a great song. There aren't very many filmmakers that know that. Worse, there aren't very many filmmakers who care because they don't understand the music business and don't want to. But you know what? When we pushed a single for a movie and made the movie about the single and used the single as the promo, not only did the music do well, but the movie did well. Right. That makes total sense. And so it's just about stopping looking at the business in the box that it exists today and daring to create a new box that could be full of potential possibilities on how to solve some of these problems. These are really complex problems. It's not going to be easy to solve, you know, but it starts with companies not being greedy enough to only worry about their own product and instead, or in their own bottom line, instead looking at how to solve the problem of how do we make the industry better? Because if the industry succeeds, we all succeed. Elon Musk knows that. That's why he gave away the, the patent uh, material to other car manufacturers so that more electric vehicles could get on the planet faster. Yeah. And that's what it, it takes. It takes that kind of thinking. Innovation. Innovation, creativity. Tori, I really want to thank you for doing the podcast. It was great well, catching up with you. Um, yeah, I could go on forever about this, so. I know. No, it was a really fascinating conversation. I think people are really going to like it. Um, and that, so. keep in touch, you know. Okay, will do. Maybe Thanks we'll see it, each other at our 20th high school anniversary. That's crazy. <laughs> we're getting older. <laughs> oh, we're already old. <laughs> uh, maybe, probably, but. Tori, anyway, thank- it was good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again.